Hey Mountain, next week we kick off an amazing new series we're all super jazzed about. I think you're going to dig it too. It's called The Colors of Christmas. You know, red is the color of Christmas love and Jesus coming, and that has so much impact on our own lives. We're going to talk about how it might even impact your gift giving. And then white is the color of purity, and how every one of us just longs to be made clean and pure before God, forgiven. Blue is the color of sadness and grief, and it'll give us a chance to talk really honestly about some of the hard stuff and junk in our lives and all over the world. And then Christmas services are about green, which is a color of new life. An opportunity for all of us just to think about all the parts of our lives and hearts that need to be made new in Jesus. So get excited about it, think about it, invite a bunch of folk, it's going to be awesome. This week, however, we're wrapping up this bundle of messages we call Bold. Remember our big question? What would you do if you weren't afraid? Well, we'd love boldly. We would have bold faith. We pray bold prayers. We would give with bold generosity. And today we want to talk about a bold community that lives and stands out in a world that's segregated by class and color and creed. You know, the church in Acts stood out. It was different. It was bold. And one of the ways they did that is they were so Jesus-shaped that they, they looked different on this matter of what drives people apart. Today, racism drives people apart, but we've got the power of gracism, and that's the power of Jesus that draws people together. So we at Mountain have been praying this humble prayer for years now, just saying, God, help us be a church where really anyone can come to. Unchurched or church, black, white, single, Asian, Indian, doesn't matter, just that everyone could come and find a welcome here, and nothing would keep them away. And part of that means we just want to be made into a more fully multi-ethnic church. And uh, that's part of what we want to talk about today. This isn't about being politically correct. It's about being biblically correct. You know, it's not about diversity training or something like that. It's from really the, the vision that the Bible itself gives us. In Revelation, it shows us a picture of heaven. And one of the most beautiful pictures, it says heaven's going to be with every nation, tongue, and tribe standing before the Lamb, worshiping with one voice. Not separate voices, but one voice. Man, that's a longing and an ache in my heart. I hope it is in yours. That's what the church is going to look like in heaven. And we keep praying, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if that's what it looks like in heaven, man, we've just got to do all we can to be bold and say, man, that's what it needs to look like right here on earth now. So today we're going to be bold and say, man, how can we learn from someone who's a little further along on this vision of a church that looks more like heaven than we do right now? And I'm so happy that we landed Mark Demaz to encourage us today. Mark is a really well-known author. You've probably heard of him. He's a nationally recognized leader and a founding pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas. It's a very diverse church. They've got large percentages of black and white, but also people from like 30 different nations who walk and worship and work together in an amazing church. Uh, he's been a pastor for over 30 years. Long time as a student ministries pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Arkansas. He graduated from Liberty University. He's got degrees from Western and Phoenix seminaries. And Mark and his wife Linda have been married for about 25 years. They got four great kids, Zach and Will and Katie and Emily. And Linda, his wife, has a couple of books out. And one of them is about comfort for parents who have grieved the loss of a child. It tells you a little bit about the depth of their family. He's here this weekend. He's a great guy, a great heart for God, and a great heart for the church. Will you welcome our friend, Mark Demas? Well, good morning. 
Good morning, Mountain. I am so honored, seriously, to be here in, in the great city of Baltimore and, and this really ex- excellent church. I'm so happy to see it. Pastor Ben, of course, a great guy. We're becoming friends. And he's told me about the journey that Mountain is on in, in moving towards becoming that bold community that we'll talk about this morning, building a healthy multi-ethnic church for the sake of the gospel. I have the privilege of traveling around the country, seeing different churches in various stages of this journey. Uh, but the time I was here last night, this morning, great. Over at Edgewood, uh, last night after the service, we went over there to the Epic Center. Tremendous work. I felt totally at home because that's very much the same community that I minister in. We've got Harbor Freights and uh, Big Lots and a Wendy's and a Walgreens, so it was exactly like the community I am. So very at home here and so thankful to be here and honored to be with you this morning. You know, as Pastor Ben mentioned in, in the video there, in the video bumper, uh, Jesus taught us to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven, right? So here's the question. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If Christ taught us to pray that what's going on up there, so to speak, ought to be down here, and the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? According to the latest research today, 86.3% of churches here in the United States fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches across this country are segregated by race and class and that little has changed in the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. Amen? It should not be so. But more than bemoaning uh, these statistics, these demographics, as it were, um, the fact of systemic segregation in the local church has created a major credibility problem for the American church, for local churches like mine, like yours, in presenting a credible witness of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. Take a look at these statistics, mined by my good friend Dave Olson from the Evangelical Covenant Church. In a study of more than 200,000 churches, Uh, here in the United States in a period of time between 1990 and 2009 at a time in American history when more than 56 million people became American citizens through birth or legal immigration. During that same time, only 446,540 people became active members of a local church. That's less than 1%. No one's listening. No one's listening. And I contend that the primary reason that people are not listening to us and to our message is because we preach a message of God's love for all people from otherwise segregated pulpits and pews. To do so unintentionally undermines the very credibility and authenticity of our witness. And an increasingly diverse and cynical society, therefore, is no longer finding credible our message of God's love for all people, again, because we, by and large, preach it from segregated pulpits and pews. Let me give you an example of what that looks and feels like in real time. Uh, In Little Rock, we started our church, Mosaic, in 2001. Uh, By 2003, we were able to rent an abandoned 80,000-square-foot Walmart in our community, one much like uh, Edgewood here, 80,000 square feet for the whopping sum of 10 cents a square foot, right? So that's like $665, $70, something like that a month for 80,000 square feet. It was so bad. The first thing we did is hire an animal trapper to trap all the animals living in the ceiling. I mean, rats and cats and possum. 
It was horrible. Our people lived with flea bites for six months in that place. I am so thankful to to tell you that five Sundays from now, we will worship in a brand new space. You know, it took the Israelites 11, it took them 40 years to go 11 days, roughly an 11 days journey by walk. It's taken our church 10 and a half years to go three blocks up the street. We're moving from from a Walmart to a Kmart. We were renters of the Walmart. Now we own the Kmart and we're moving up in the world, right? So uh, we're so excited about that. But back in the early days at the Walmart, you know, we had this glass front, right? And, um, and so we're next to a Kroger grocery store in our, our community. They're called Kroger grocery stores. Uh, a great thing about coming to Mosaic, of course, is you can get your groceries, you can fill up your car with gas, go to the pawn shop, trade your jewelry, cash a check before you get paid. I mean, all this stuff, and then go to church and worship all in the same space, right? So, but they went over to the Kroger and they invited this woman. She happened to be African-American. So when she came over to the church that morning, she got to the big glass front. And when she got there, she went like this. So what do you think she was looking for? Every minority in this room knows what she was looking for that morning. Is there anyone else like me in this place? So what if she sees the white pastor? I'm white and Italian, by the way. I have a Hispanic last name, born out of wedlock, 1961. And uh, I, I basically, people just, they think I'm all kinds of things, and that's fine. Whatever helps your demographic, no problem, right? So, uh, <laughs> but she looks inside, and she sees the white pastor, and the white pastor is going, God loves everyone, God loves everyone, right? And then she sees the all-white man, AWB, back behind, right, singing a rock and roll. God loves everybody, God loves everyone, right? And then she looks over on the, the wall and, and sees a big bulletin board with a map of the world, and all these little pins in it, and pictures of what we call missionaries, all these people that we send to love all those people across an ocean. But she knows she's never even seen this church across the street. What could she conclude? She could conclude, well, I guess the God they're talking about and singing about is the God of the white people because I don't see any of my people in there. And what is any different about that today Then a couple of thousand years or so ago, when the Hittites had their gods, the Egyptians had their gods, the Phoenicians had their gods, and we Jews have our God. This is how an increasingly diverse and cynical society sees the American church, each with its own God. They don't articulate it like that, but that's what it translates. That's what it feels like to them, no different than it felt two or three thousand years ago in real time. Now, you may say to me, now, come on, Mark, when God looks down on Baltimore City here and the surrounding areas, I mean, he sees the beautiful diversity of his church. Sure, we got white churches, black church, Korean, Hispanic, but when God sees the big picture and looks down, because it's really one church, right, the church of Baltimore, let's say, it's not just the individual churches, so when God sees the city of Baltimore, the church, well, he sees the beautiful diversity of the kingdom of heaven on earth, and I'm like, hey, that's totally fine, all well and good if you're trying to evangelize Jesus. Y'all trying to save Jesus here today? You're trying to help Jesus come to Jesus? See, it's not Jesus, it's not God who needs to see that. It's the woman at the window looking in like this. She needs to see a credible presentation of God's love for all people where we're not just talking about God's love for all people, we're not just singing about God's love for all people, we actually demonstrate a love for all people when diverse men and women walk, work, and worship God together as one. That's what she needs to see, and that becomes attractive and winsome for the very proclamation of the gospel that we so desperately desire for her to know. So we have a major credibility problem due to the fact that we primarily proclaim Jesus Christ from segregated pulpits and pews. This must change if we are to be relevant and credible 
in the 21st century in the days and the years ahead. The fact is the New Testament church was multi-ethnic, what we would call multi-ethnic today. Jewish and Gentile believers, Jew, Gentiles means everybody, right? All the nations. Jewish and Gentile believers walking, working, worshiping God together as one in local communities in the New Testament. This advanced a credible gospel message and ultimately what led to 300 years later, the entire Roman world coming to Christ as it were and becoming the church that was there. So there was a credible presentation of God's love for all people in and through these local churches, beginning with Antioch later on at Rome, at Ephesus, in Corinth, etc., churches of Galatia. The New Testament church was in fact multi-ethnic. It was envisioned by Christ on the night before he died, John chapter 17. It was described in action by Luke, uh, particularly at the church at Antioch, Acts chapter 11, uh, where for the first time uh, people with intentionality uh, went and spoke not only to Jews but to Gentiles with the gospel, developed a very large multi-ethnic, multi-site uh, a church there, a megachurch as it were in Antioch, sent missionaries to the world, etc. out of there. So we see it described by Luke throughout Acts, but particularly in the church at Antioch. And then lastly, it's prescribed by the Apostle Paul throughout his writings, uh, Romans for instance, or even in Galatians, but particularly you see Paul articulate uh, the vision of unity for the church, unity in the church for the sake of the gospel across ethnic economic lines in the book of Ephesians. So Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church. Luke described it. Paul prescribed it. Uh, in other words, I'm not out promoting or pursuing the multi-ethnic vision for the church uh, because Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing face of America, right? Not because of changing demographics. Perhaps you know that today one in two children under the age of five are minorities. By 2018, one in two young people under 18 will be minorities. Today, 43% of millennials, that's roughly 18 to 35-year-olds, are minorities. It's the largest single demographic minority group in the history of America. And by 2042, one in two people in this country will not be white. Having said that, uh, that's not why I'm out promoting or pursuing this vision for the church. Not because of Barack Obama, not because of changing demographics, and certainly not because Rodney King once asked us all to get along. I'm promoting and pursuing this vision in my own church and in churches across this country and around the world because it is biblical, it is right, and it is the hope of the gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. So if you understand and buy in, as it were, to this explanation, this vision, uh, right out of the New Testament we're showing, if you buy into that, then you ask yourself the question, well, what do we have to be committed to, to be this kind of a bold community that gets beyond homogeneity, gets beyond our own preferences, past experience, personalities, to walk, work, and worship God together as one with people who are very different in background from us, but very much the same in terms of their love for God and finding Christ. What would a church that is a bold community like this, full of diverse believers, actually have to commit itself to in order to actually live out this dream? And when you think about that, you think about it from two perspectives. One is there's, there are commitments that a collective church, everyone together as one must make, and that we might call these structural uh, commitments, but then there's also personal or individual things that each member of that community must and should commit themselves to in order to pursue this vision. So in the next few moments, I just want to give you five uh, core commitments, as it were, five things that collectively Mountain as a church uh, must be committed to, as well as individuals you personally in this church should be committed to if, in fact, you're to become this type of bold community, asking God to make this church 
uh, a church of unity and diversity for the sake of the gospel. So here's the first commitment. That is, first of all, you have to take intentional steps. Uh, this, this has to be intentional. It's not something that just happens spontaneously. Sometimes I, I work with pastors around the country and they say, man, the diversity of our church is just happening. It's just people are showing up and they're more diverse and it's like God is doing this and, that, and it's totally fine. And yes, that's happening, kind of that spontaneity uh, that's happening. But what I know for a fact is what occurs sometimes spontaneously cannot be maintained or healthy if it's not uh, pursued intentionally. And so uh, corporately, the church, in this case Mountain, must take intentional steps to become a healthy, multi-ethnic community of faith. So what's one intentional step collectively the church can take? Well, it has to understand the difference between assimilation and accommodation. Wherever I go, people are, are quick to tell me, oh, we'd welcome anyone in our church. We don't turn anybody away. Greeters at the front door, ushers. We'd welcome anybody. It doesn't matter their ethnic background, their economic class. Uh, we'd welcome anyone. And, and wherever I hear that, I know these people sincerely mean what it is they're telling me. But what I also know is they haven't really thought deeply about what it is they're actually saying. So what they're actually saying, and they don't even know it, but what they're actually saying is we'd welcome anyone as long as they like it the way we do things. And this is how most people want to pursue diversity in the church. They want to take the minority, whatever it is. It could be a white guy coming to a black church. It could be a black guy going to a Hispanic church. See, whatever the minority in that situation is, they want to take that person. So let's just say it's a white church and an African-American shows up. See, I want to take them by the hand and say, here's how we preach. Here's how the music works. Here's how small groups works. Here's how the children's ministry works. And as long as the black guy and his family likes it the way we do things, hey, we're one big happy family, right? But what happens if an African-American shows up and says to me, the pastor, hey, you know, if we did some gospel music every now and then, I think we could attract more African-Americans. Now, certainly, that's not the only reason African-Americans attend church is for gospel music, right? But it is a part of the cultural heritage and the church and the background of African-Americans in our country, right? If you're a white leader in an otherwise predominantly white church, what do you say in that moment? Well, I know a lot of guys, they, they oh, man, I, hey, I like a little gospel every now and then and, and, and everything. I'm certainly not against it, but, I mean, you know, we got Dave here on the guitar, and we wouldn't want to be inauthentic and not genuine and stuff. We can't really ask a rock and roll guy to do gospel, but you know there's a great church up the street called Second Baptist, and I've heard they've got a really kicking gospel choir. What did you just communicate to that person? You didn't mean to, but what did you just say to that person, Right? See, this is how people want to chase. Collectively, churches want to become diverse. They want diverse people to like it the way they do things. That is not at all how you become a bold community of multi-ethnic faith, right? You don't practice assimilation. It's actually accommodation where structures of the church change in form and practice in order to welcome the other, right? That actually happened to me, by the way, in the early days of my church. I had an African-American woman said the exact same thing. We'd thought about this. So we began to say, well, how can we intercorporate different styles of music? We didn't even have the talent, as it were, the, those that were gifted to do that. So we went out, we hired some people for a while, and we brought it in, and we began to mix our music. And that's just one of the things that we did structurally to become a much more accommodating community of faith, not just trying to assimilate people verse to our likes, our tastes, the way we did things, as it were. So practicing accommodation versus assimilation is a way that a, a corporately a church can be intentional in this regard. What can you do individually uh, where, where this is concerned? Well, here's what I'd say. Start with the Word of God, right? 
Study to show yourselves approved in this area. I've just alluded to the fact that the New Testament is filled with this vision. Everywhere you turn, it's there. You know, I, I once got a new car. We rolled it off the lot. It's the only new car in my family we ever bought. It was a Honda Odyssey back in the day. I thought I was so cool. The doors worked. Everything was great. My four kids. I rolled it off. I thought I was the only guy that owned a Honda Odyssey. I came out there, Honda Odysseys everywhere. You ever had that experience? You get a car that's, it doesn't have to be brand new, but it's new to you, and you think it's one of a few, and all of a sudden they're everywhere? That's exactly what this is like. I bet you didn't realize that uh, in the story of Luke 10 that Pastor Ben referred to last week, this isn't a story told simply to say, hey, when somebody's down and out, help them out. There's a primary reason that Jesus tells that story. You know what it is? To answer the question, who is my neighbor? And in that story, he shows the neighbor is someone very different than you. It was a Samaritan loving on a, 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 a presumable Jew. The reason Jesus tells the story is to show that it's love for your neighbor to define a neighbor as someone very different than you, someone that you are likely to feel aversion toward, maybe historical hatred in terms of ethnic competition or groups. This is who a neighbor is. Did you know that? That's the reason he tells the story, to define. And our love for our neighbor is not someone who lives next door to us. It's someone very different than us. Perhaps you didn't know there's two Gospels in the book of Romans. Did you know that? You say, what do you mean, two Gospels and Romans? I mean, everybody knows the book of Romans is all about the Gospel, atonement, redemption through faith, uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is. There's a lot in there. But did you know that at the end of this book, Paul starts with his thesis, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of that Gospel. Why? What's he say? Power of salvation to who? Jews and Gentiles alike. Let me tell you about that. And then he goes off to explain the Gospel what we call the gospel, proclamation of Jesus. In Romans 16.25, Paul then says, Now, after explaining all that to you, multi-ethnic church at Rome, may God establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus. Did you know that Paul called, said he had his own gospel, his own good news, built off the proclamation of Jesus, but he calls it my gospel. What is his gospel? Very simply, it's the gospel of Gentile inclusion. He defines this later on in Romans 16 and Ephesians chapter 3. It's the fact that not just Jews, the church, the kingdom of God, is not just for one kind of people, it's for all kind of people. This is the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Gentile inclusion. Did you know that? Two gospels in Romans, right? Did you know that 1 Corinthians 13 is not about loving your wife and, and we use it at weddings all the time? Hey, great, we can learn a lot about that but it's actually loving Jews and Gentiles together in a local church. Paul basically says, let me show you a more excellent way to reach the world with the gospel. It's beyond using your gifts, love one another. It'll present a credible message. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 2, it's not the loss of a relational love for Jesus. It's a, love, a loss of love for all the saints, Ephesians 1.15. These are things that we haven't thought deeply about in Scripture. We just read commentaries, listen to preachers, dig into the Word of God. You'll see this everywhere like a new car. That's what you can do personally to take an intentional step. Here's another commitment the church must make to empower diverse leaders, right? A multi-ethnic church, it has multi-ethnic leaders walking, working, worshiping God together as one, modeling on what this is like before the body, right? So you see this in Acts 13.1 after Luke has described the church at Antioch. He says, now let me tell you, there were five leaders. Let me tell you the pastors were at this greatest church of the New Testament, this multi-ethnic mega missional church at Antioch. And he lists the five men not only by their names, but by their ethnicity. And you learn that two are from Africa, one's from the Mediterranean, one's from Asia Minor, one's from the Middle East. And this is prescription for us in the New Testament. It's indirect prescription. In other words, the readers of Luke would have understood implicitly what he was saying. Healthy church, uh, healthy multi-ethnic church, bold community of faith, 
with a healthy multi-ethnic leadership team uh, modeling and leading the way for people. So churches collectively must empower diverse leaders. What can you do individually in this regard? As minorities, if you're a minority in this room, non-white essentially, then, then churches like Mountain need you to step up to volunteer, to step out, to talk to the pastors and leaders here. Hey, I want to get into leadership. I want to serve more. I want to do more and, and, and work uh, in a variety of ways, in, in all kinds of ways, because what you ultimately want to have is diversity from the pulpit to the nursery and every station in between. I was talking in the hallway after the first sermon uh, to, a, to a gentleman that came up to me and talking about this, how uh, he was African-American, but through the years in corporate America, he had to kind of go along and play the game. He said, nobody ever asked me my opinion. He had to go along to get along. But see, healthy multi-ethnic churches do that. Boy, I want a diverse group of people sitting around our boardroom, right? Because I want to ask them differently. What do you think about? Because everybody brings their own experience, their past experience, personality, preference. You can't let that govern the church. But sure, I want it in the mix when we make big decisions. We want to hear from everyone, right? So if you're a minority, step up. Get involved in opportunities to lead and serve here. This church wants you. If you're white, learn to support that. Even Paul talked about how he had to set aside his power and his privilege as a Jewish man to welcome the Gentiles. As white people in this country, we've been privileged and we've had essentially collectively the power in this country. It's not that we get rid of it and it's gone. and We've got to open up the doors and support and set aside our privilege for the sake of the other to create a much healthier America. We can't really control what's going on out there, but we can control what's going on in here in the church. And white people to learn to follow and to support and, 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 and to come alongside. That's super important in terms of building a bold community of multi-ethnic faith. Here's a third, a third thing, a third commitment is develop cross-cultural relationships. You know, relationships are important in any church, uh, all white, all black, whatever, right? But they're essential in building this type of bold community. Why? Because trust is not a commodity that you can easily assume in a room full of people different than you. To build cross-cultural relationships takes time. And sometimes as Americans, we don't have a lot for time, right? We want a quick burger, we want to get it done. Boy, it takes a long time to have a good cross-cultural relationship, to establish that, right, and, and to do that. So what can a church do that? Here, here's one thing collectively a church must understand, is there is a 100% chance in building a healthy multi-ethnic community of faith as the church becomes more and more reflective of the community, of society, there is a 100% chance that you will offend or be offended in this environment. Did you know that? Just get ready for it, expect it, don't freak out. 100% chance you are going to be offended or offend in building a bold community of multi-ethnic faith. But, you know, unless I'm the only husband who's ever gotten in an argument with his wife or wife to husband or whatever and felt like, I am done, I'm walking out the door. Am I the only guy like that? I guess I am. All right, so... But in those moments, right, in those moments when that happens, you know, no matter how much you're stewing and there's a disagreement and there's been a fence or what have you, at some point you look down on your finger. And I know it doesn't always work this way. Divorce happens, etc. But ideally, you look down on your finger and that ring reminds you of a commitment. That we made a commitment to hang in here, to work through these issues for better, for worse, to love. And that's the kind of attitude a church takes on. When diverse people are coming to a church, uh, your church, or even a, a white people, a majority culture people are coming, and the church is becoming more diverse, here's what you've got to understand. The vast majority of people wouldn't even be in the room if they didn't want to help create this type of church. So when there's a fence, we've had people in our church, white people go up to black people and say, is that your hair? You know? 
We had a white guy, 65-year-old doctor, in a room full of men one time. He looks at all the African-American guys in the room, and he says, now what do we call you people? Now, that's not kind of the tone and tenor you want to have outside the church walls, but in a healthy, multi-ethnic church, see, people know how to respond to that. They don't take offense to it. They recognize, here's a guy raised in Arkansas. His parents were racist. He wouldn't even be in the space if he didn't want to get beyond that. So they're not listening to the tone or tenor of his question. They listen to his heart. And they overlook the offense, right? And, and they say, oh, yeah, you can just call us black, African-American, and they move on, right? They keep the ring on. And that's what a church has to do in order to pursue or develop these kind of cross-cultural relationships. By the way, how can you individually do that? Here's a great thing. Who are you going to lunch with today? Statistics tell us that most Christians go to have relationships. The primary relationships formed by Christians in America are, are with people they go to church with. But if 86.3% of churches are segregated, right, by race or class, that means white people are hanging out with white people and blacks with blacks and Koreans, and we're not getting to know each other. I'm sure we work together, we go to school together, play sports, but really relational connection. Who are you going to the beach with? Who are you inviting to dinner? Who are you going to the movies with? Is it always someone like you? In a church like this, there's opportunity. Get outside of your space. Go beyond your comfort zone. Invite others who are different than you to the table right? Churches like this can create dinners for eight where they're intentionally mixing diverse people. And in those environments, what you want to do is listen. Ask people to tell their stories. I met a woman out here. I would have said she's African-American. She told me she's like from the, the West Indies and she had a white mother and a French. I mean, she was like completely smorgasbord of all that, but you'd never know it, right? Telling her story. I was listening. And we build relationships that way when we tell each other our stories and we listen well. Individuals can do that. You don't have to wait on a church to do that in developing cross-cultural relationships, right? Here's the fourth commitment. You also, in building those healthy or cross-cultural relationships, it leads to the pursuit of cross-cultural competence. So it's not just knowing someone, but it's being able to, to move seamlessly in and out of different worlds as well with a, with a measure of competence and, and churches and individuals can develop this. For instance, in our church, uh, we, we had deaf folks in our church in the early days, right? So we had a deaf section right here. And like a lot of churches, we had screens on the side, deaf people right here, an interpreter here, the pulpit in the center. And so we sat down with our deaf folks one day and said, how, how are we doing? We're pursuing cross-cultural confidence, right? Trying to get better in the space. And, and we thought we're doing great. And they go, oh, you're not doing that well. Really? I mean, what are we not doing? Like, we thought we were doing it, right? So said, well, think about it. You got, you got us here, interpreter here, sometimes you show slides or videos on the side screens and here, and we hear with our eyes, so you're asking our eyes to go in all these different directions at the same time. They said deaf people in general have a fourth grade educational level, right? So this is very difficult for many of us to understand what's going on. We're like, I never knew that. So what did we do? Well, we still had our deaf section, but we moved the interpreter, right? We bought a big screen TV just for the deaf folks, put it behind the interpreter, and aligned everything with the pulpit. It was such a simple gesture, but we accommodated our deaf people and demonstrated our heart for cross-cultural confidence. In the same conversation, they said, we used to meet in this, this big Walmart, as I mentioned, with no walls, and at a certain point in the service, a bunch of kids would get up and move in the background. They said, well, we hear with our eyes. That's like a lot of people who can hear everybody screaming at one time because we get distracted. We're like, I never knew that. So what do we do? We built a pipe and drape and just hung a drape so the kids were hidden when they moved at a certain point during the service. Little accommodations that spoke so much, but how did we get there? Because we were pursuing cross-cultural competence. 
We did that structurally as a church. You can do that individually, right? Asking good questions. In fact, I have a resource out at, at the table. I brought a couple books. One will take you deeper into the theology and these core commitments. Another is an eight-week daily devotional small group whereby you can get in touch with your own culture as well as some of the other cultures. The only curriculum like it in the country, it's called the Multi-Ethnic Christian Life Primer. You can use that primer as an individual or in small groups to pursue cross-cultural competence. You find out in this primer, for example, things like the difference between individualism and collectivism, right? So in this country, white people have always had the power and the privilege so we can live individual lives. Around the world and, and here in our country, minorities live and see things more collectively than they do as an individual. Where does that come up in terms of conflict? Think about Ferguson. So white people in general look at Ferguson and Michael Brown and they say, well, uh, Michael Brown shouldn't have been robbing the store. He shouldn't have approached the officer. He should, they'll think like that. And they see it as an act that it, when he was shot and killed, there was an act of individual responsibility he should have taken. He didn't, and that's why he ended up dead. But the African-American community doesn't see that. Right? Because this is a collective, systemic issue that goes back hundreds of years. They don't see that as an individual. They see it collectively. And they interpret it that way. Which leads to things like Black Lives Matter. right? And then white people say, well, all lives matter, don't they? But that's not the point. See, they, all lives matter, yes, but so does Black Lives Matter. Because that has a certain understanding. You have to know this because if you think just individually and not collectively, then it creates problems on Facebook, Twitter, and society. You see what I'm saying? You learn things like this when you pursue cross-cultural competence. A primer can help you do that in daily devotional and small groups. And finally, one last commitment is to promote a spirit of inclusion. Right? Churches have to promote a spirit of inclusion in order to become the bold community in this increasingly diverse society God intends for it to be. In terms of our church back in the day, the first time we had bulletins, we're a bilingual church, so we have Spanish and English. And uh, the first time we ever made bulletins, somebody came in and they put all the English bulletins on one table here, and then they put all the Spanish bulletins here. Makes a lot of sense, very organized, very Western, right? On Sunday morning, I walked by that with one of our staff members who was from Nicaragua. We looked at each other and said, no, that's not going to work, right? And so we put all the bulletins on one table. It created a little confusion, a little chaos. You say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, you speak English, go here. Oh, you speak Spanish, go here. And yes, it makes a lot of organizational sense, but what does it communicate? What does it structurally communicate? Us and them, right? So there's a good chance if you come to Mosaic Church on a Sunday, you could end up as an English speaker with a Spanish bulletin or vice versa, but we'd rather live with that problem than with this problem. And we make those choices intentionally in promoting a spirit of inclusion. What can you do as an individual? Uh, just a couple simple things. First of all, our past experience, personalities, and preferences can't be allowed to judge or govern a church. For instance, you say, well, I don't like this music uh, today. I don't like the music they did. Well, think about whenever we judge a church or what's going on, we typically judged it from what? Our past experience, our personalities, and our preferences. And those are certainly important, but here's what you've got to remember. Your way is just a way of doing things. It's not necessarily the way of doing things. And when you set aside past experience, personality, and preference, and it becomes a part of the mix but not the central focus, then you begin to practice what Paul called on the church at Philippi to do in Philippians chapter 2. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So if there's a little gospel music going on on a Sunday and you don't like gospel, right? 
You don't, you don't judge that. You don't say, I don't like this or whatever. You look around the room and see all the people enjoying gospel. You say, thank God I even got a seat at this table. You claim Philippians 2 because next week they're going to be playing some rock and roll and they're all going to, the gospel lovers are all going to have to claim Philippians 2 for you. You see how it works? This is what it takes to be a bold community in a multi-ethnic society. Well, with all this in mind then, uh, ultimately, uh, you think about this boldness, this idea of the courage and the faith and the sacrifice it takes because making peace is not at all easy. You know, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, all these Beatitudes, you get something for what you do, but in one Beatitude, peacemaking, you don't get something for what you do, you're identified with someone for doing it. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called or identified with the Son of God. There is no higher identification in Christ that we can have as individuals than this to pursue and become peacemakers, bringing diverse people together in Christ and to one another through the church for the sake of the gospel. This is what Christ gave his blood and life for. This is what Paul preached his gospel for, is to see on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom of God reflected, presenting a credible message of God's love for all people in a diverse society. Peacemaking is not easy. Do you know what the next three verses speak about? Persecution. Right after Jesus talks about being a peacemaker and identifying with the Son of God, the next thing on his mind, the next three verses speak of persecution. That's why it takes boldness. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 then, after speaking for three chapters about creating this kind of bold community of multi-ethnic, faith, uh, multi-ethnic believers pursuing Christ by faith, he says at the start of chapter 4, verse 1, therefore walk worthy of your calling. What is your calling? It's to be one across the ethnic and economic divides of the world. Be one in the church for the sake of the gospel. Paul says you have to walk worthy of that calling to be one. And by the time he gets to chapter 6, he's talking about the difficulty of this in terms of spiritual warfare. So in fact, chapter 6, he goes on to say this. He says, we must stand firm, verse 11, collectively, y'all, it's plural words, you, Y'all collectively as a church must stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What is the scheme of the devil? Division. And how does he typically divide? As he goes on to say, verse 12, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is flesh? It's the color of your skin. What is blood? It's culture. These are the things that typically divide the church. This is the scheme of the devil. That's not the struggle. The struggle is to be one in the church for the sake of the gospel and not let the devil and spiritual forces divide and conquer us and gut the very power and presentation of our credibility in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say in verse 13, therefore the church must be a bold community. He talks in terms of, of spiritual warfare. Church, put on the armor of God to stand firm and resist the devil sowing division in your midst along color and culture. He says you have to persevere with all the saints. When Paul uses the phrase all the saints, he means Jewish and Gentile believers. Everyone together must persevere. And lastly, he says in verse 19, now pray for me that boldness will be given me in declaring this message. At the end of the day, Paul didn't give his life or wasn't persecuted for preaching Jesus Christ. He gave his life and was persecuted for preaching his own good news, built off the proclamation of Jesus, that is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. He knew it was a courageous move to preach it. Churches know that today, and that's why it requires bold communities to chase this dream for the sake of the gospel. So what is God doing? Well, as my good friend Chris Rice has written, he said this, I have become convinced that God is not very interested in the church healing the race problem today, but rather God is going to use race to heal the church. And I pray that Mountain will continue on its journey in being that bold witness for Jesus Christ in an increasingly diverse society. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to consider these things this morning, to worship in such a great place with great people on this journey. Bless the pursuit of bold community, of building a healthy multi-ethnic church for the sake of the gospel, to present a credible witness of God's love for all people in an ever-changing time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.